I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 69 of Talking Golf History. As we dive into the conspiracy theory of whether Ben Hogan won five U.S. Opens, and not the four that history tells us. Today on our show, we welcome Peter May, author of The Open Question, Ben Hogan and golf's most enduring controversy. A book that dives into Dan Jenkins' argument that the Hail America National Open was in fact a United States Open championship, which would give Ben Hogan a record fifth U.S. Open, 10 majors, and the all-time low round in a U.S. Open. If you want to know my thoughts on the controversy, I share them in great detail at the end of the show. Buy the book, read the book, and shoot me an email on what you think. Without further ado, let's welcome Peter May, longtime sports writer for the Boston Globe and the author of five books, including this most recent book. Peter May, author of The Open Question, Ben Hogan and Golf's Most Enduring Controversy. Welcome to Talking Golf History. Thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to be on. So, Peter, uh, share a little bit of the backstory as it comes to the subject of this book. How did you come upon the idea of writing this book? Uh, that's that's a good question. Um, I spent most of my life writing about basketball <laughs> for the Boston Globe, and uh, I uh, did cover some golf for them. I covered some golf for the New York Times over the last decade, and I went. Uh, I came across this this tournament thanks to a tweet from Dan Jenkins, of all people, uh, who was always champion five opens for, for Ben Hogan. And he just mentioned kind of parenthetically in this tweet that Hogan, uh, that Justin Thomas was going to shoot a 63. I think it was Aaron Hills. He tweeted, this was during Aaron Hills, the uh, 2017 open. And uh, to, to, people might think that would tie the record, but the real record is 62 set by Ben Hogan in the 1942 Open, which is what he called it. And uh, Hogan Hogan stands by that, and so do I, or something. It was something like that. And I didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah, and w- when did that sit in for you? Like, I mean, so you, you saw that tweet. Dan's been gone for, you know, a while now. When did that set in that, you know, you needed to dive into the subject matter a little bit more? Immediately. Really? I mean, yeah, I... I maybe foolishly or, uh, you know, obtusely think, think of myself as somewhat of a lay golf historian. And uh, I had no idea what he was talking about. And I followed golf, you know, pretty much my entire life. Um, but not as closely as you or, or a lot of the you know professional golf writers and stuff like that. Uh, and I had no idea what he was talking about. So I, one thing led to another. I, I got in touch with him and we went back and forth a few times on emails and then he finally said, what are you doing with all this? And I said, I'm going to try to write a book about it. 
And he said, good luck. You know, there's a lot of good stuff out there, especially, you know, during the war, which is when the tournament was held. So uh, that's how I that's how I got interested. And then, then I just kind of dove into the research part of it, which proved to be very equally fascinating because it was a period of time I wasn't all that familiar with. Yeah. Wa- walk us through the research. How did you go about researching the book? The books, uh, I started researching it. Um, I actually went first to the Ben Hogan Foundation, and they were um, initially very, uh, you know, helpful and, and eager to assist. And then they kind of turned on a dime because they decided that the book was going to pit Ben Hogan against the USGA, and they didn't want that. They didn't want to be a part of that. And I understand that. That was fine. Uh, but that's not what it, that's not what I was doing. But that's fine. And from and then uh, I hit the uh, USGA museum in Far in uh, Far Hills, New Jersey, twice. Uh, the second time about three days before it closed due to COVID, so I lucked out there. No kidding, right? Uh, um, and once I decided to include Bobby Jones in the uh, story, I went to Emory University. Uh, and went through their archives a little bit to find out mostly stuff about Bobby Jones during the war, because uh, that was a, I was focusing on four golfers from that tournament and what they what they subsequently did in World War Two, and so I, I mostly focused on Jones in the war. I mean, there's tons of stuff. I mean, there yeah, it, it could be it could be its own book, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I wasn't interested in the Grand Slam year or that stuff. I was interested in what he was doing between 1942 and 1945. Oh, I love that. I mean, you're right. I mean, everyone knows about the Grand Slam year, but not a lot of people know about that little piece of history yeah, for him. He, he was uh, he was insistent upon getting into the service and going overseas. And he was 39 years old uh, when war broke out, and. Uh, he didn't get overseas until 1944, um, which sort of made him 42. So, uh, but he did get over there, and he came back pretty pretty quickly. Like six weeks, he was over there, and he, and he was mustered out. I think he figured that he, whatever it was he was doing over there, and that's still not clear. I know that's the that's the part. It's like it's there's a shield of secret, you know. That's 70 yeah. years later, 80 years later, we still don't know. They don't. They never talked about it. My dad was in the. Uh, Pacific Theater. He never talked about the war. Uh, not that we quizzed him about it, but he, I never heard him talk about it. And I think they all were like that. I mean, the things they saw and the things they experienced, I think, were just you know too horrific, and they just wanted to forget about it as much as they could. But he never talked about it, and uh, uh, so I just had to piece together what I could from you know the archives at Emory. To kind now, of- what were the what were the takeaways? Give me. Do you have any nuggets from the the archives that you found on Bob Jones's service in the war? Uh, the nuggets that I found um, were mostly uh, letters that he wrote uh, when he was over there, and the way he kind of enlisted all the movers and shakers in Atlanta to try to get to, to write to the army to get him into the army air corps to get him overseas. Uh, he he pulled up. Every, I mean, he was Bobby Jones, so you wouldn't have to pull any strings, but he pulled he pulled a lot of strings uh, to get to where he wanted to go. And he went to uh, intelligence school in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, just before he went across the pond. So there was one of those one of those specialties at the school was interrogating prisoners of war. So there's a 
reasonable facsimile that that's what he did uh, or, or something along those lines. His grandson told me that he thinks that that's what his, his grandfather did, but he thinks it was more a case of uh, him, you know, just throwing a pack of cigarettes on the table and saying, I'm Bobby Jones and I'm expecting them to know who he is. <laughs> Well, he was a lawyer, right? I mean, he, he definitely had he had the intelligence and the ability to work around the language barriers. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think minus the minus the illness that killed him, it wouldn't hurt to come back as Bobby Jones. You know, the, yeah. Life. I mean, is that the next book? No. <laughs> I got come on. You could tie it in with the Red Cross matches, like nineteen sixteen and seventeen, and the war effort. Yeah. It's a beautiful story. Yeah. No, I mean, the one thing I did not want to do was get into bi- any kind of real serious biography with any of these guys. Uh, Hogan's had a bunch of books written about him. Jones has had a ton of books written about him. Uh, there's, I don't think there's much I could add you know, to the volume that's out there already. So, uh, But I was happy to get what I got, and I had a lot of stuff um, in the book about him communicating with Dwight Eisenhower uh, post-World War II and how Eisenhower, you know, joined Augusta and then they built the Eisenhower cabin for him on off the 10th tee. And, uh, uh, you know, Jones loaned him his clubs or not loaned him, sent, sent him his, his clubs when Eisenhower in Europe, uh, not, not with the ETO, but with NATO and, uh, Eisenhower played. And I think he said he shot a 37 or something on the nine. And Jones said, that's, that's good. Don't, don't think that that's going to happen every time. <laughs> and Eisenhower said it didn't. <laughs> yeah, so, that's great. Yeah. So before we dive in the story, uh, our story today, tell us a little bit about Ben Hogan prior to the golf year of 1942. So this was before the quote unquote secret. It's before he develops the fade. Uh, kind of, well, really, fair, it's fair to say it's before he became the legend that we know as Ben Hogan. Yes and no. Yeah, far away. Yes, I would say because he had won what we would determine to be majors, although the majors back then were not the same, at least to the players were not the same. The Western Open was considered to be a major back then. The British Open was not. That was a bridge too far for most of these guys. They they didn't get over there. It was, yeah, I mean, it's a week over, a week back. You have to qualify. Food's not any good. You know, they didn't, they didn't. There's a reason why Hogan only went once and Mangrum only went once and Demerit only went once. I think they went over there to try it, but it was not anywhere near as important to them as it is today. But in 1940 and 41 and 42, Ben was winning a lot of tournaments in the States and he was uh, becoming, you know, the leading money winner on the tour. Uh, So he was, he was uh, probably the best player on the tour. He just hadn't, won any of the big tournaments and he he came close in 42 at the masters uh losing in a playoff to byron nelson and uh he but he didn't win what we would today call a major until uh the pga in 1946 so um that was the one thing that that had kept him from being you know ben hogan in capital letters was the, the lack of but he was winning. He was winning tournaments. Yeah, Europe. I believe he won fourteen tournaments prior to nineteen forty-two. I guess prior to the Hail America, because I believe he won one or two the year of the Hail America National Open. Right. I think it, 
I don't know how many. I mean, you might have the chart there. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think of because he he just really broke out after he won the first one. He just really went went going on a real you know ride, and he was he was playing quite well heading into the uh, heading into 42, and then heading into the Halo America. He, he had advanced, I think, to the yeah the quarterfinals. I think of the PGA the months before. Um, so he was, he, you know, he was in the conversation every week. Basically. Yeah. It is one of those myths out there for Ben Hogan that, uh, that he really couldn't play until he quote unquote found the secret or started hitting the fade. I mean, he was a page turner, right? I mean, he was news. He was on the front page of the sports page. It's not like, uh, you know, this magical moment where he started hitting a fade and the, his life changed. Sure the hook kind of haunted him, but it didn't keep him from winning or setting amazing scores. No. And, and I mean, putting held him back as well, too, as you know, probably uh, in 1946, he three putted the 18th green at both the masters and the U S open uh, where two putts would have been a, in a playoff. And one putt, if, he, if he made the putt, he would have won. So the, the putting was a little, you know, I mean, some days he made them, but you know, he, he harkens back to those uh, tournaments as you know near misses as they call them i guess uh but yeah no he he hadn't developed you know the stuff that you know the secret supposed secret and all that stuff that was and he was kind of a he was a kind of a mystical guy it sounds like from everything i read about him you know he didn't he wasn't mean or ornery kind of like mangrum could be but he kept to himself he you know he and valerie i think did a lot of traveling together and um, and he was, he just loved to practice and he practiced all the time. And, uh, I mean, there are golf writers who insist that he kind of invented practice for golf. And people saw him do it and saw what he did and said, maybe I should do that too. Yeah. I, I think I, I, so we've had Ben Wright on the show and we've had, uh, Tony Jacklin was our, our last interview. And I think both, I think both said Hogan was the kind of guy that didn't suffer fools. So if he put you in that category of fool, whether that's fair or not, but if he determined like you weren't worth his time, he did not give you that time and could be quite short with you. Never to the point of being mean, just curt, I think would be a good way to put it. Right. Um, I just find it so funny when I was doing this book, everybody calls him Mr. Hogan. Yeah. The reverence. The only person I heard him call Ben was Dan Jenkins. Everybody else called him Mr. Hogan, and else even Tiger Woods. I, I even I found that to be really fascinating. Just the level of kind of admiration and respect and almost awe that, in which they held this man uh, was astonishing to me. And, and even the guys at the Ben Hogan Foundation call him Mr. Hogan, and the librarian at the I mean the uh, curator at the at the Ben Hogan Library and. Um, Duluth, Texas, and museum. Mr. Hogan. Mr. Hogan did this. Mr. Hogan did that. I think. You know, I, it is amazing. I, I, I've I've just been fascinated. So um, with Ben, right when we had him on the show, we had a show called My Friend Ben Hogan. He became friends with him, but he said his first ever golf experience was watching him warm up for the 1953 Open, and the reverence that he gave in talking about that. And then Tony Jacklin plays a practice round with him, and both of them are like. To this day, no one has ever struck the ball as well as Ben Hogan. And they're saying this through all time. And I, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, as I listen to these stories, unfortunately, 
I'm not old enough to have seen Ben Hogan in his prime, but to hear these folks who played with him, who, you know, befriended him, who, uh, you know, watched him in all these tournaments, still having that kind of reverence is kind of, it's magical all these years later, isn't it? It really is. I mean, I, I, I don't remember who said it, but, um, Somebody said in one of the quotes about this, the way the ball sounded coming off Hogan's club was different than anybody else's. And that sort of goes to what you were saying. And then, of course, the, the guys that used to shag balls for him at, at Shady Oaks, they just stand out there and he hit shot after shot after shot, and they'd have to move like six inches to pick them up. <laughs> they were all exactly where they were supposed to be. So back to you, Lo. I mean, how is it researching, you know, a legend of the game? I mean, do you find it difficult, you know, or or do you ever find yourself stumbling across things that perhaps you didn't know about that you're just even in in more awe, whether that's in an interview or, you know, in the USGA archives? Uh, yes. I mean... What I, I was unaware of Hogan. I mean, I knew he was good. I, I knew, you know, I knew the, the, the genuine, you know, Cliff Notes version of his life and his golf. But I, I didn't. I had no idea how dominant he was, especially after the automobile accident. I mean, that to me is extraordinary. So that was that was interesting. I had, I really, he was always, almost always in the money. Some in every tournament he played in, uh, he didn't have a whole lot of bad rounds. I also was unaware of how. Uh, how hard it was for him out of the shoot, you know, the first four or five years of his career. And the, uh, the story that I, he's told it before I tell it in the book about how the most important golf round of his life was the last round of the Oakland open. And I want to say 38, maybe I'd have to go back and check where he, he was one round away from going home and quitting basically. And he made enough money to go on to the next one. And he made enough money and one thing led to another. But uh, so it, that for me, I mean, learning about how dominating was, uh, that to me was kind of an eye opener. I, I knew he was good. I just didn't know he was that good. Let's get back to the events here. So can you give the, our audience a history of the events that took place in 1941 to help set the tone for the events that, that where the book takes place, 1942? Right. So in 1941, uh, I guess we can start with the awarding of the U.S. Open to Interlochen in Southside Minneapolis, which was the site of the U.S. Open in 1930, where Bobby Jones uh, won leg three of the Grand Slam. And they were all set to host it. And their club, you know, their club president had gone down to Colonial, which had hosted the 41 Open for you know, pointers and, you know, just an idea of how to get things done and make it a seamless transition. And they were all set. And then Pearl Harbor happened and everything changed after that. And then the USGA met in January and they canceled at the time they ran four tournaments. They canceled them all for 42 and left unsaid. But what everybody understood to be the truth was that they wouldn't resume until the war was over. Yeah. Do we do do we know if there was any debate within the organization on the cancellation of the national championships for forty two? Did you stumble across anything on that? Not, not in any contentious way. No, I, it was uh, the, the the minutes. I I, can't, I got a hold of the minutes of the meeting from that day, 
from the USGA library, and it's all very, you know, collegial, and everybody everybody agreed that they had to had to stop the golf tournament, which is kind of interesting in a way, because you know the Masters kept going, yeah, uh, the PGA PGA did too, and the man put in charge of deciding whether golf would go on or not. Uh, a man by the name of John Kelly, uh, he was an ardent proponent of playing golf during the during the war, so that people would stay in shape. Which is how the Hale and the Hale America came to be, because it stands for Hale, as in Hale and Hardy and healthy. Uh, and he wanted people to play golf, so in a way, it kind of ran, ran, the USGA's decision kind of ran counter to what was coming out of Washington in terms of getting people on the golf course. Let me ask you a question, and this is a little bit off topic, but do you now that you've done this research, um, do you any do you see any similarities between 1942 and say the 2020 U.S. Open and what we went under? I'm sure somebody's asked you this question already, but uh, you know we, I guess we thought we were going to cancel the U.S. Open, we delayed that decision and had it at a different time. Mm-hmm. Do you, do, I mean, you probably know this as well as probably anybody that's done the research do you feel like there's any similarities there obviously ours went forward and then the hail america of course went forward but what are your thoughts there well i mean the interesting thing about 2020 was that there was no qualifying for the u.s open yeah it was a u.s closed yeah right (laughs) that's a good phrase uh so that was the major difference between that open and you know all the other u.s opens uh qualifying has always been a kind of a hallmark of the Open because, like you said, it's the U.S. Open. It's open to pretty much anyone who's a good golfer, real real good golfer, I should say. So um, that's the only uh, that's the only non-similarity or, you know, if you were to contest the 2020 Open uh, as not a legitimate U.S. Open, that would, to me, be the reason why you would do it uh, because it really wasn't. It really I think said. some people have, right or wrong. I think some mm-hmm. people have brought that up, that there wasn't open qualifying. Well, here's the thing, um, Connor. The, it, it really doesn't matter what I write or what you think or what golf historians think. It's what the USGA thinks. That's the, that they make the decision, and we all, we all have to live with it. We can point out you know, absurdities or we can agree with them and, there certainly are a lot of people who've taken the opposite stance that I took that think that the Hail America should not count as the U.S. Open, and that's fine. And that's why the book is called "The Open Question" and has the word "controversy" in the subtitle. It's it's not an open and shut debate. But no matter what anybody says, the, the final decision is made by the USGA, and they're the ones that you know we have to abide by what they what they say. Agreed. I, I think it's an extremely well written book. Uh, it definitely draws a line in the ground between a lot of golf historians and Ben Hogan fans. Uh, many historians see the argument that the 1942 Hill America National Open being viewed as a U.S. Open and they roll their eyes, while others embrace it. What makes the divide so wide between these two camps? They're just, there's no middle ground, right? I mean, I think if you, you've read the information, you are in one yeah. camp or the other. Yeah, I, I, I think I don't. That's a good question. I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, it, but it is. Uh, you're either, you know, I, I think it's a fairly simple uh, proposition. It, it either was an open or it wasn't an open. And 
I think the fact that you had a guy like Dan Jenkins uh, continually pushing for it, uh, aside from the fact that he was a friend of Hogan's and he was from Fort and all that, making the case that he did, I think that gave it some legs. Uh, but there's plenty, like you said, there's plenty of people out there who, who don't consider it to be a U.S. Open. And mainly the most important <laughs> vehicle of all the USCA. So. Sure. You know, before we dive into the pro U.S. Open argument, I often find when I'm doing research, like every time I'm doing research, Mm -hmm. I stumble across a lot of parallel stories of interest. What kind of good stories came out of that research that perhaps were, you know, unexpected, you know, pitfalls of wisdom that maybe you haven't heard of before or maybe nobody else has? There were a few. Um, I mean, because I went into this pretty wide open in terms of like wondering what happened. Uh, as far as the tournament itself is concerned, uh, what came out, one of the things I discovered was uh, that there were uh, seven qualifiers at Olympic Olympia Fields outside Chicago who were denied the chance to compete because they were black. Yeah, the Chicago Seven. I was going to mention that if yeah. you didn't. I just, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know it. Yeah. Yeah, um, so that I didn't know it either. So that that kind of said to me, wait a minute, you know, that's and especially since you know the USGA could have stepped in and didn't, uh, kind of makes them look a little. Yeah. So there were seven golfers, black golfers, most of which played on the UGA circuit, which was the uh, United Golfers Association, and one of them was the great. Robert Pat Ball, who won four UGA Opens. I mean, it's I, I I'm actually doing a podcast on uh, Pat Ball uh, later on. So when I read that in your book, I was like, "How did I not know that?" I mean, because there's so many stories with 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 Ball specifically, where you know he was an advocate for you know for golf, not just you know black golfers, but just golf. These these guys just loved the game of golf and they just wanted to play. And for this to tie in your story, I mean, I, you, I mean, nobody else can see this cause we can see each other, but I like have goosebumps just thinking about it. They tried to qualify and they were forbidden from it and nobody stepped in on their behalf. No, no. The USDA said it would abide by the decision of its member club and you know, Olympia fields didn't have black members and they didn't want black people on their golf, on their golf course or on their clubhouse. So, those guys got turned away. And yeah. I did not know that. And uh, it's, I mean, what is that? It's, it's almost 50 years from um, John Shippen playing in the U.S. Open, the first black offer. I mean, just, you would, I guess, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but you think they would defend that, but, you know. And they and they defended the right of John Shippen to play in the, in the U.S. Open in Shinnecock, the first one. Uh, they went to bat for him, and they didn't go to bat for these guys. So, um, you know, that's, that is one more example of kind of the USGA having its fingerprints all over this tournament, uh, which means that in my way of thinking, you know, they ran it like a U.S. Open and they, they, they had all kinds of side stories going on, but the black guys being one of them, which indicates that they were, you know, they were really in charge of this tournament. What, what else came from it? I'll, I'll share another one that I did not know about, or if I knew about it, I forgot. But I had no idea 
how well Bobby Jones played at the age of 40 in the qualifier. If you could share that, because that, I mean, he's 40 years old. He's basically coming out of retirement. Yes, he's kind of a token player. I hate to use that word, but he didn't care about winning his own tournament, the Masters. He was in the tournament to basically promote it and make sure that people were coming to the Masters and enjoying their time. He was a host more than you know, a championship player. And here he is, and he comes into the qualifier. And tell us a little bit about that at Eastlake. Um, and the other, I mean, the other interesting thing about him was that he, he, he wasn't a, you know, an avid golfer in the term, in terms of playing all the time. He does, he played sporadically. He didn't, he, he was kind of the anti Hogan, uh, if you will. Uh, but, he didn't. The funny thing is, is he didn't have to qualify for the Hail America. The, the, the USGA had, had exempted him, but he hadn't played, uh, you know, in any kind of professional tournament or any kind of professional setting other than the Masters. So he figured he'd need the time. He'd use the qualifying rounds to kind of iron out the rust and you know get 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 ready for the tournament. And what happened was, is the so-called longest day in golf that they call it now. Uh, the second round of the qualifying was 54 holes, that not 36 as it is now, over two days, not, not one day, over two days. And Bobby Jones had the lowest three-round total of anyone in the country. The fact, the, the, the fact is, is that there were a number of touring pros who had to qualify, Jim Ferrier being one of them, and uh, they didn't you know, score as well as Bobby Jones did. Yeah, I I think I wrote this down. If I got it wrong, did he shoot 67, 61, 67? Is that right? Or did I write that wrong down? Uh, No, yeah. So he did not shoot 61. No, I must have. That's why I asked. I thought that number looked wrong. I'd have to check the book, but I think it was 195, maybe. Could that have been maybe the total? So uh, it was was ahead of everybody in the country. And and that's, to me, was amazing. I just. And Again, it looked I, like six shots better than all the other qualifiers at Eastlake. Yes. He was the Bobby Jones and, of old. And he was, and he was, you know, he was given that, that kind of helped him too, because Eastlake was his home course. So he, he knew the course as well as anybody. So that was an advancement, but still, I mean, that's still impressive. I mean, I, I, those two stories, I think stood out for me. I think, uh, I don't know. I just grasped, grasped onto them with so much joy reading about, this 40-year-old Bobby Jones, and I think you had a quote in there about Grantland Rice, you know, in dialing back the clock. And, I, you know, and then you have the, the Chicago 7, who, you know, in theory had every right to qualify for this open event and were, you know, sent away like they have in the past. Um, right. Just wanting to play golf, giving a fair shot. And it was, and it was, they were trying to raise money for the war. And, you know, they, it's just, they, these guys weren't applying for membership at Olympia Hills. Olympia, they were trying to qualify for the U.S. Open. So it, it, it really was not a – I don't think the USGA handled it the way they should have. So walk, my, walk the listeners through the history of how the Hail America National Open came to be. It was originally – was designed to be an event for the Chicago District Golf Association. How did it morph into Hail America National Open? How did that come about? Um. That's what they called it when they announced it, uh, which was in late January 1942. Uh, and when they announced it, they didn't have a course set up. They knew it was going to be in Chicago because the Chicago District Golf Association had lobbied 
for it right out of the box once the U.S. Open was canceled. They wanted the dates and they wanted it to be in Chicago. And it made sense to be in Chicago given that it's a central, you know, locale. It's easy to get to. It's easy, you know, in 1942 as you could get there. And the club that they picked, Bridgemore, uh, is not one of the, you know, blue blood clubs in, of greater Chicago, of which there are many. Uh, but it was uh, convenient for everybody to get to by streetcar or by car car. Uh, so that was one of the reasons that they did it, but they did when they, they announced the hail and they announced right off the top of the, then they said, this is not going to be a U.S. open. You know, we're not doing that. And I don't think that they thought they were going to get what they got when they made the announcement because they started off by saying, you know, we're going to invite Bing Crosby. We're going to invite Bob Hope. We're going to try to get as many people there as we can raise money for the war, which is a, admirable undertaking but they eventually everybody played at it that not everybody but most of the top pros played in it and sneed being the most notable absentee was sneed sneed was overseas already was he not was he in no no he he was in norfolk virginia i'm not sure sneed ever went overseas okay but he i'm sorry i guess when i met overseas he was in military service at that point was he not yeah he had just joined the navy and that was one of the things I wanted to find out, but I really, I, as much as I tried, I couldn't find out about it because I think the Navy would have let him out to play in this tournament because the Army was letting people like, get out to play in it. And, it's not bad press, right, to have an Army man, you know, no, shooting no. in the he National Open. And he just won the PGA, you know, the month before. So he was still in, in you know, good shape and golf-wise. But... To the, something happened and he didn't he didn't get in there and I couldn't really find out what it was or why he didn't play in it but he didn't and he's the major missing piece I mean there were others that you know were kind of B B plus players but Sneed was the only A list player that wasn't there. Well, can you walk us through the highlights from the championship? How did how did it play out? Because I know Hogan did some remarkable things that I know you'll want to talk about, but walk walk us through how it how it came out. Well, it, they, they started it. First of all, it was a four day tournament, which uh, the U.S. Open was not a four day tournament at that time. It was three days. But it made sense. If you're trying to raise money for the war, you have four different gates. That, that, that made a lot of sense. Um, what happened the first couple of days was that the scoring was incredibly low for U.S. Open. And um, on the first day, Hogan got to the 17th hole and he hooked his drive next to a tree and and hit. on his second shot, he whiffed trying to get it out to the fairway. Wait a second. Hogan whiffed? I mean, that's newsworthy right there. Be pre-secret, Hogan could whiff, folks. <laughs> I forgot to mention that in another interview I did when they were saying, you know, what did you learn about Hogan? I said, well, he whiffed on the 17th hole. That's right. Yeah, that's that's newsworthy right there. And he took a six on the hole, which is a double bogey. And then he didn't make another bogey or worse until the last hole of the third round. Because on the second day, he shot, he shot an even, he ended up shooting even par 72 the first day, which in most U.S. Opens would be a good score. But this was, he was seven shots off the pace, and a lot of guys were in between him and the lead. And then day two is when he shot the 62. We had eight birdies and eagle and nine pars. So let's let's put that in perspective. A sixty-two. Let's uh, uh, let's take out the 
the U.S. Open discussion, because uh, a 63 has been shot in every single round of the U.S. Open, if people didn't know that, most famously by Johnny Miller in 1973 in the final round. How many 62s – or uh, rewind. <laughs> Had there ever been a better score on the PGA Tour that you're aware of than a 62 prior to that moment? I'm not aware of one better, but maybe no. you, you did, saw he that. Shot a, he had shot a 62 before. Yeah. And one of the, I think it was in Portland. Uh, but no, I never. I don't think there was. I mean, I think 62 was it. And uh, one of the things I stumbled upon when I was researching this book is I, I got an email from a golf auction house, and and the uh, one of the things they were auctioning off was a scorecard from Ben Hogan, claiming it to be Hogan's lowest round ever, which was 61, which he shot in a just a you know playing a, a regular round at Seminole. And so they, it, they put it out for bid, and I think it went for like twenty nine thousand dollars. Wow! So, you know, uh, so that was the that was the news of the second day. It was Hogan sixty two, which put him into a tie for the lead, and then uh, he was tied for the lead after three rounds as well. And then the fourth round, it looked like Demerit was going to win the tournament because he was three shots up on the backside, and then he sort of did what Chesson Hadley did this last weekend. And he went, he got turned, turned into a bogey machine at the, oh, yeah. at the worst possible moment. And Hogan ended up winning the tournament, but Demerit was up by three shots with five holes to play. And, uh, unlike today, the, you know, the leaders didn't come in late, weren't grouped like in the last groups, like they do today for TV. So, uh, Hogan finished you know, at a different time than Demerit, who finished at a different time than Mike Ternesa, who was the other guy in, in contention. Uh, and uh, Hogan ended up winning by three shots, but it it didn't look like a three-shot win of, you know, probably an hour before Demerit came in. I mean, just to watch that final, because if I'm not mistaken, Ben Hogan's playing with Bobby Jones in that final round. So you have right. two of the greatest of their eras coming down you know, the last 18 holes together. I mean, what would that have been? I, I, do you do you remember what Bob Jones shot in that final round? It's fine if you don't know. Cause <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can find out. Yeah. It, it wouldn't take long. Uh, he but fascinating. Up, this is another fascinating little nugget from the tournament. Uh, they played together the last two rounds. Um, but the USGA considered Jones to be a pro for this tournament, not an amateur the money he had made doing golf videos for, I think it was Warner Brothers, after he had retired. And and there, they have the funniest ways of deciding who people can't, can't play or, you know, as amateurs or are in. Because Jim Ferrier was a golf writer for, from, for the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia when he came over. He was a good, great player, too, as well. His father was a golfer, golf pro, and taught him. And he was a really good player in Australia. But he came over to the States to cover the, the golf for the Sydney Morning Hill. And he, and he tried to get into the U.S. Amateur one year, and the U.S.J. wouldn't let him because he made money riding golf. Which is crazy because Chick Evans had an, a contract with the AP. I think Bob Jones wrote nationally syndicated articles. So you're right. I mean, the, who was an amateur who wasn't? You know, Francis we met lost his amateur status because he owned a sporting goods store that happened to sell golf equipment. And, and, you know, it was profiting from the game. So, yeah, it's – I mean, Bob Jones, uh, 1926, uh, was working for Whitfield Estates, selling real estate on a golf course, Whitfield Estates course, which is now 
Sarah Bay Country Club. And part of his job was convincing people to play buy real estate by playing golf with them. I mean, there's multiple reasons why Bob Jones could have lost his amateur status, but it never mm-hmm. happened. And whether they looked the other way or, you know, right. it's just, you know, the times. I, I would say Farrier gets in trouble. I hate to say this because he wasn't from the United States. <laughs> That's harsh, but I'd yeah, stick to that. Yeah, I don't know, but but they, the USDA considered Jones to be a professional for this tournament. Yeah. And he finished one shot out of the money. Like, back in those days, you know, not everybody made money, even if you made the cut. You uh, he finished one shot out, and, and by doing so, he forfeited uh, the possibility of getting a check of $16.66 for finishing tie for 30th or whatever it was. I think it's about the 30 top money winners got money. And I would love to have seen what would have happened if they had handed him a check for $16.66. Yes, indeed. I'm not sure, I'm not sure he even knew. Uh, I found no evidence to suggest that he knew, even knew that he was being uh, considered as a pro. And uh, yeah, because you could almost see him like missing a putt if he knew, just so he wouldn't be put in that scenario. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And maybe he did, and maybe he knew, but I haven't found any evidence to suggest that he was aware that he was, and he was listed in the uh, as Captain R. T. Jones, you know, in the in the. Uh, well, score sheets there because he was he went into the army the day after the tournament. Yeah, so uh, the Hail America Open it was jointly held by the Chicago District Golf Association, the PGA, and the USGA. Walk us through the argument that the Hail America National Open should have been considered a U.S. Open. Be that argument from Ben Hogan or or whomever. How is that argument structured? Uh, it's it structured mostly on kind of rebutting the reasons why it wasn't considered a U.S. Open and the reasons that the USGA provided me for the book. And I made sure that I ran their entire statement because I didn't want to be accused of cherry-picking uh, anything. But, I mean, the, 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 there, there's there's the course is an issue, the scoring's an issue, uh, the field was an issue. I suppose the format is an issue because there was no cut and it was four days, and that's both different from a regular U.S. Open. But the the the, the similarities are such that it, it was run like a U.S. Open. It was I mean, we meant we talked earlier about the qualifying. They had they had two rounds of qualifying all over the country, sixty nine sites for the first round. Uh, that's what they do for a regular U.S. Open. Um, then once they had the field set, they showed up in Chicago, and Sam Bird's uh, clubs were deemed to have non-conforming grooves. Interesting. Now, yeah, now I don't, I don't really know what that means because you have to be really good to understand what what the grooves do and how they do it. But he had to borrow a, a set of clubs to play uh, in the tournament because he's, his irons were. Non-conforming. Well, who makes that decision? You know, the US, the USGA does. Uh, the PGA was involved only in, to the extent that you know, they got the tournament on their calendar and urged their players to play in it. Uh, the Chicago District Golf Association did, did all of the grunt work for the tournament, uh, you know, getting tickets and, you know, logistics, all that stuff. Um, and, but the USGA was, ran the tournament 
from a golfing perspective, uh, pretty much just like the U.S. Open. And, of course, at the end of the tournament, Hogan is given a medal that looks a lot like the medals he, he would later win uh, by the president of the USGA. And that is how, to me, Hogan has always framed this thing. I mean, there are times when you can, he, he does admit that he doesn't know if it was a major or not, but he always comes back to the medals. He never criticizes the USGA. He never says, why, why are they acting like this? Don't they understand this? You know, he says, he, I've got five medals. And they were all presented to me by the president of the USGA. So what does that tell you? And I think that's a, you know, that's a fair argument, even though the medals looks a little different. It doesn't say the same thing on the back as the others. Uh, it's still, it's still a U.S. Open. And you're, you're probably seeing the picture of him holding the box with the five. Yeah, no, I, I don't doubt that, you know, he's, you know, Ben Hogan's a hard, hard person to catch on this one because it seems like over his years, he goes back and forth on a, whether it's a U.S. Open. Like There's quotes where it's like, I, I, right before the 1955 U.S. Open, he says, if I win my fifth U.S. Open, I'm going to retire from professional golf. And you're like, thank God you didn't win. I mean, I, mean, I loved, it would have been amazing if he would have beat Jack Fleck, but we would have lost those competitive years from Hogan you know, that were amazing. Uh, right. Him going against Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus. Yeah. And then there's other times where he's like, yeah, I've got these five medals. Um, so it's, I, you know, I, obviously I, I, you know, Ben Hogan is one of the most complex individuals in the history of golf. So, you know, I, if I, if he was standing right here, I don't know how I'd respond to him, but I might say if you were here too, because you're from Boston, I assume you're a Red Sox fan. Uh, this only works if you're a Red Sox fan. <laughs> Kidding. All right. Okay. So I'd say, you know, Ben, if let's assume Ben's a Red Sox fan, what's the difference between a new era MLB hat that has a Yankees symbol and a Boston Red Sox? It's what's imprinted on the hat. So just because the hat or the medal looks the same, it's what's on the medal or the hat. Otherwise, like if I wear a Yankees hat in, in uh, South Boston, I'm probably going to get beat up just because <laughs> of what's printed on it. Yeah. I think Hogan might beat me up for saying that too. Um, let me let me ask you this. So, and fair, unfair, but let's say if I were to put you on the witness stand and you had to swear the oath on whether or not the Hail America National Open was a U.S. Open, what would Peter May say? I would say that it was. Yeah, I would say they should they should reconsider. Uh, and in light of all the things that have happened since 1942, in terms of scoring, uh, in terms of you know. The, the the course set up and stuff. Yeah, Richmore wasn't set up as tight like a U.S. Open, but you know there have been courses, and I go through them in the book that the players absolutely hated. Uh, they didn't hate Richmore. They just the the conditions were fine. Um, they just they just thought it was you know too easy. Uh, but here's the thing, you know, everybody plays the same course and. I agree. I always say that when it's a really hard open, they're saying it's unfair greens. I'm like, we all had to put those 18 greens. Right. Everybody plays the same course. And what's the object of the tournament is to produce, you know, a worthy champion. And this book wouldn't have been written if, if Odie Crisman had gone on to win the Hail America, obviously, um, because nobody would be saying anything, but it was Hogan. And 
the thing is that he himself, and, and, and like you said, a number of occasions he's, he's, he's equivocated about it. But to me, the the, the telling uh, piece of evidence is this, the list of majors that he's won that was presented to him at a, at a dinner in 1953. And it listed the four U.S. Opens, and he wrote 1942 in there himself and then signed it. So... Um, he always, I think he went to his grave believing he'd won five U.S. Opens. And I think that, it, I don't know what harm it would be for the USDA to say, you know, in light of everything that's happened over the last 80 years, uh, we'd, we'd like to, you know, revisit that and, and you know, award the Hail America to Ben Hogan as a, as a U.S. Open. Now, personally, I don't agree that the Hail America would be a U.S. Open. But if by some miracle the USGA changed its mind, how would it change golf history in your mind? It changes uh, some of the record books, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, 52 goes in there, uh, 271 over four rounds. What, what was that, 17 under? Was that what the 17 amazing under. score? I mean, I, whether it's U.S. Open or not, 17 under is remarkable. The 62 um, is remarkable. And that would have, this, the, two, the 271 would have, held as the U.S. Open scoring record until, I think, McElroy went on that tear at Congressional. Uh, the 17-under also, I think, would have stood until maybe Aaron Hills, because McElroy, I think, was only 16-under. Yeah, know? I think uh, you're right. Uh, and so that would have been that. So those those would all, by now, have been matched uh, or, or surpassed, which is, I think, another reason why you could look at it and say, well, maybe, you know, in hindsight, you know, it was a it was a remarkable score for U.S. Open at the time, but it's not that remarkable anymore. And as I point out in the book, more people broke par at Pebble Beach a couple of years ago than broke par at Ridgemore in 1942. Um, and no one's saying that Pebble Beach is an easy course or it's not a U.S. Open venue or whatever. It's just that the players now are just so much better. And the equipment is so fantastic. <laughs> equipment is better and the ball is yeah. better and the equipment makes me look half decent that's scary yeah man so that would be my you know th- those things would say obviously the number of majors would change he'd, he'd now have 10 instead of nine um he'd have the record for the u.s open and and if somebody's got to hold the record for the most u.s opens it, it's it's got to be him because he was he was in the top 10 i think it was for 16 straight opens in which he competed yeah and amazing that, that's pretty remarkable now, I, I don't think – well, I, I just say I don't know if I can be considered U.S. Open. That being said, I enjoyed the book. I think everybody should buy the book. I think you should make up your own mind of what you think after reading the book. Right. Um, I don't know if it's a U.S. Open, but perhaps a bigger question to me is should it be considered a major championship, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, like the USJ for me, if the USJ has never wavered, is it a U.S. Open? I'm like, okay, I get that. But then there's the question of – it is a national open in you know in the case that there was no US open and i'm way more flexible when you mention that you know it had a strong field it was a national open the majority of great players from that generation were present i don't have the answer <laughs> and nobody does and that's the weird thing cuz there isn't a government body a governing body that says what is a major and what isn't uh, the right. PGA Tour, for instance, Peter has been marketing the players as a major for decades, but mm-hmm. no one goes the, knows the route of how it becomes a major. Right. So, what do you think? Like, how the heck does a major become a major? And if this case, 
you know, should, I mean, of all things, let's, you know, whether it's a U.S. Open or not, should it be a major championship? Should Hogan have 10? I think that's yeah. an argument that I can, you know, that's, swallow. That, 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 you know, that's, that's the split the baby um, argument. And that, you know, I think Joe Dye uh, brought that up in, in a conversation he had with Dan Jenkins was, you know, we don't consider it an Open, but we, we would probably consider it a major. It was called the Hail America, America National Open. Um, so uh, there was a National Open tournament. And so, yeah, they could say maybe we're not going to award them in the U.S. Open, but we're going to consider that tournament a major by today's standards. Yeah. Uh, What's crazy is the USGA doesn't have that authority either to call it a major. No. Right? I mean, that's that nobody knows how anything becomes a major anymore. It was all invented by, you know, Arnold Palmer and definitely popularized. Absolutely. Mike McCormick, what's his name? The guy at IMG and, and Bob Drum, the sports writer from Pittsburgh. That's 1960s when it really first, this, you know, the four things kind of said, Oh, those are the majors. Let's go for a grand slam. And of course, when Bobby Jones won the grand slam, it was a completely different set of tournaments. Absolutely. And Palmer really, I mean, it's brilliant on the 30th anniversary of Jones winning in 1930 and 1960 says, you know, we should popularize this professional Grand Slam, and we're going to bring in the Open, and I just—it's brilliant. I mean, it, right? And they, and like I, I think I mentioned earlier, back in in the '30s and '40s, there were a number of tournaments that the players themselves considered. They didn't have majors back then. I mean, they, they, everybody recognized the importance of the U.S. Open, obviously, and the PGA. The Masters didn't come into into uh, existence until 1934, and then. It a few years for that before everybody said, "Oh, this is <laughs> this is something special. We better this this would be one of the ones we want to win." But the, you had the Western Open, you had the North South Open. I mean, the Canadian Open was a big. I mean, at one time, everyone was looking at national opens. So you looked at like the French Open was a bit like Hagen. There, there's a cutout I have of Hagen. I thought it was in my room. I think it's a Pitzker photograph, to be honest with you, and I think it lists. There's whether it's the Pitzker photograph or not, but it lists like 18 majors under Walter Hagen because it's including the French Open, it's Can- the Canadian Open, it's the Western Open, which he won five times. It, there, there definitely was a lay. Uh, uh, there was, it was vague as to what was what the championship. Of, right, and then so it, it is, did Bobby Jones? You know, did he win seven majors or did he for thirteen? Absolutely. You know? um, so, uh, and if you want, if you give him 13, then do you have to give Tiger Woods three more, uh, you know, Sam Edders, he won or Jack Nicholas two more. So, I mean, it's, it's all kind of funny money, I think. Yeah. Well, I think the other question that comes up too is so like in the case of the players championship, if some ruling body that was beyond, you know, the, the four majors today came together and said, I deem thee the players a major, you know, whatever, you know, outstanding voice comes down from the golf heavens. Um, Then the question is, are all of those past players champions major winners? I mean, so, and, and it adds two parts to that. One is, did they play under the guise and the pressure of it being a major championship, right? So, you know, when someone wins the players and I love the players, but they don't cry on the trophy, right? They, it does. It's not a life changing event. But on the other hand, you'd then have like Calvin Pete would be the first black man to win a major in 1985. But on the flip side of that, no offense, do not take offense to this Jody Mudd, but you'd have Jody Mudd, major champion of the players, 
So it's there's a whole box of worms that goes into that, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And I and I thought about the, you know retroactively going back and, and and saying why should the guys from the 30s and 40s uh, be penalized for if they're for the number of majors that they won? Hundred percent. To the British Open because they that was the furthest thing from their mind that that would be a major tournament and, and too far to go and all that stuff. And Jones Jones only played in those tournaments when the when, in the years that the Walker Cup was open because they'd pay for it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean Hagen, I think went there five times. I could be wrong. It could be six, and he won. You know, four of them. So it's right. like. It's amazing when, and if you think, okay, well, if Hagen's going every year, if Bobby Jones is going every year, um, you know, if the Western is a major and when before the Masters, what does the grand scheme of majors look like? And it's a landscape that we would be unfamiliar with today. Yes, yes, it would be, and you know, and, and they counted the amateurs back back in those days because a lot of the good players were amateurs. Yeah, there were yeah. lifetime amateurs that were adults. It wasn't kids in college. No, it wasn't, you know, Jody Mudd <laughs> playing college. Poor Jody Mudd. I don't know why I just threw him under the bus. I feel terrible. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that that's when, I mean, Hagen kind of popularized the pro game. And then, and, and then in the 30s, the tour got started. But, be, and, you know, up into, I mean, I think it was Johnny Goodman won the, won the 32. Open. Yeah, the U.S. Open. Well, and then you have to factor in the, the, uh, the Great Depression, too. All of a sudden, yeah. these amateurs couldn't just have a day job and work because work was depleted and money was cut and you couldn't travel and you didn't have the luxuries that you did in the twenties for the most part. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, Bobby Jones quit in 1930. His timing was impeccable in that regard. Yeah. Well, I tell you, Peter, I had a great time talking to you. Um, how, how has been, what's the reception from the book, Ben? Um, it's, I haven't got a lot of feedback from the principals involved. Uh, uh, most of whom are dead, so I guess they couldn't. But um, just you know, the USGA or, or uh, but I think the re- the reception has been fairly positive. Um, I've been on a number of podcasts like yours, and I've done a couple of interviews. I've done some speaking engagements, and I you know I, I point this out everywhere I go. That, you know, it's, 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 it's a, basically your classic example of ignorance is bliss. Uh, not knowing about this and then finding out all the stuff that I did find out. And that was why I wrote the book. I mean, I wanted to, you have to take a stand on it to make it a, you know, an argument. For sure. A a convincing book or or try to make it a convincing book. So you take a stand. But mostly I wanted to bring to the public people like myself who might not have been aware of this tournament. And I think, you know, you're when probably most of your podcast listeners probably have some sort of you know, casual knowledge of this term. Yeah. I would uh, actually argue out of the tens of thousands of people that listen to my podcast that 95% of them know nothing about the story that you told. Okay. I mean, because I mean, I, if I only had golf historians listening to the show, we'd have like 10 people. Right. <laughs> I love all my listeners, by the way. That's for the record. <laughs> Just stating a fact. Yeah. So that's, that's the audience that I'm trying to reach. Just to bring this topic to the fore, let them read about it, let them come to their own conclusions, like you said. Uh, but at the same time, get a kind of like a nice, you know, kind of history of golf in the 40s and 
Uh, yeah, and I think you do that so well. The way you weave together the story uh, with the Chicago Seven and Bobby Jones's military service, and I, I just, I just thought that was just brilliant. I, and that's what I love about authors is, you know, it's so easy to tell the straight story in chronological order, um, which is, you know, probably why I'll never write a book. I just, I am, I, I'm a very linear thinker. But when I read something that weaves in multiple stories into the overarching arch of the story, it really is compelling. It's a journey in four different directions, right? I, really, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy researching and writing this book. And I, this is the fourth book I've written. And it's, it's the first one I really, really, you know, enjoyed uh, mainly because it was a, a like the, like the, authors always tell you the great authors that the, the journey is what makes it rewarding and that's what made it rewarding for me um the other thing i wanted to mention i don't know how much time you have left but no i have I, as much time as you like the uh the other thing that the way i the way i kind of went about writing the book is like i wanted to combine kind of the, the tournament and world war ii in some kind of way so I picked these four guys, and one of the guys I picked to, to focus on was Mangrum, Lloyd Mangrum, because um, everything I'd read about him well, led me to believe that you know he'd been wounded. Uh, yes, yes, the, I've read that too. He'd uh, you know had a jeep accident on D-Day, and I every time I read every time I read that I, I couldn't get it sourced. I said, nobody could tell me where they. Where they found out uh, that Lloyd Mangrum did this and Lloyd Mangrum did that, so I finally went up, went uh, in search of the historians who uh, document the history of the uh, 90th Infantry Division, which is what Lloyd Mangrum was assigned to. And the first conversation I had with the historian was, "You don't know what you're talking about." And I said, "Well, if I don't, then..." Neither does every other golfer. Right. Everyone's heard that. Right. Uh, and he said, uh, he said, it was very common in those days for the Army or the Navy to kind of prop up uh, a celebrity. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. And I said, okay, uh, how do we prove this? How do we document it? The, his Army records were destroyed in a fire in 1973 and at the Office of Military Personnel Records in St. Louis. Most of them were. I got I got a few of them, but most of them are. Well, this guy went to the went to the museum and he went through what they call morning reports. So Lloyd Mangrum's uh, file may not be there, but the morning reports were for the infantry division, and they were still there for some. And he, and by and he did all the work. I. Because he was out in St. Louis, I couldn't go out there. It was closed, but he managed to figure out a way to to get the material. And you know, he was able to document that Lloyd Mangrum was not at D Day, and it makes sense because Lloyd Mangrum didn't even go into the service until uh, late January of 1944. It would have been a stretch for him to go through basic training and then to be to be you know Normandy on June 6th. Um, but that was kind of, I read that in a number of places that he, that he was in on, in on D-Day, uh, and, uh, but more, more to the point that he had been at the battle of the bulge and he'd been wounded at the battle of the bulge. And that's where he got his purple hearts. 
or one of his purple hearts. And um, this, we were able to document that he could not have been at the Battle of Bulge because he was recuperating from his Jeep accident, which happened a couple weeks after he landed in France in Cherbourg at the end of July 1944. And, and this Jeep accident was, I want to say, August 15th, maybe. And he was, he was hospitalized for six months. Because how do we know this? Because we get a morning report from February 1945 saying that he has rejoined the unit after convalescing from this Jeep accident. So there's no way he could have been at the Battle of the Bulge now. So how do you, how do you square that with the stories of the Purple Hearts and stuff? He describes war injuries in, in, in these articles that would certainly qualify for a Purple Heart. You know, he got wounded. Uh, not seriously, but he got wounded. Uh, so those who qualify for a Purple Heart. There's a Purple Heart in his locker at the World Golf Hall of Fame. The problem is that there's no record of it. There's no, you can't go to the books and say, oh yeah, he got, uh, there are the two Purple Hearts. Uh, in fact, really? They, they, there's no way, the National Archives or what, nobody keeps track of that. That is amazing. There is no, no, there is no clearing, there, because there are so many of them. Yeah, that, oh, that's uh, so, especially yeah, yeah, World War II. Yeah, you can't you can't keep track. But uh, one of the guys from this, the historians from this um, infantry division, told me that uh, he said his Mangren's name on the back of it, the Purple Heart. I said I don't know, I'll, so I checked with the Golf Hall of Fame, and they said yes, it is. And he said, well, the reason that they put the names on the back of them is because those were the ones that were awarded posthumously. If you got a Purple Heart and you were still you, and you were still alive, then it didn't have your name on it. Um, so it, it just, it, to me, it was inconclusive. It, it, what's non-negotiable is that he went over there when he probably could have stayed in the States. He served his country honorably uh, in World War II, and he was discharged as a corporal in 1945. Um, but, I, you know, I, but there's still some mystery there. Is called, and he's he is the international man of mystery. I mean, he they, when he died, they said they, they you know they said it was his twelfth heart attack. I mean, who has twelve heart attacks? Right, and keeps on ticking. Right. Yeah. I mean, our forethought fathers did right, and they'd walk all the way to the grocery store five miles and back with that heart attack, and they'd like it. And bare feet in the snow. Right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, so um, he would be a fascinating guy to try to fashion a, a, a biography. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure anybody would be all that interested other than real diehard golf people because he's not that well-known and it's really a shame that he's not that well-known because he was a tremendous player. So let me ask you, just for the folks out here, how do people get a hold of your book, Peter? What's the best way? Well, the easiest way is uh, Amazon. Uh, Amazon.com. And again, it's The Open Question by Peter May. And uh, it's a great Father's Day gift. If you're still looking for a gift for your dad for Father's Day, and he's a golf man, this is a great... Um, I agree. I mean, I really think everyone should read it. It's it's one of those books where I think you read it and then make up your own mind. And I, right. I think that's... It, as much as anything, I think it, it does a service to getting this story out there. Uh, whether you side on one side or the other, you know, it's just great to know that there's a story there. Uh, there's so many of these stories that have been lost in time or buried in the attic, and 
coming out and talking about them like this, you know what? Read the book, folks, and give me an email, right? And tell me what you think. I'd love to hear it. I'm sure Peter would love to hear it. I just think, you know, we're all better when we're having these type of discussions. Right. I agree. And, you know, I'm not, you know, arguing for a return to the gold standard here. This is just, you know, an honest discussion of a tournament in 1942 uh, and the repercussions uh, from it. I mean, another way people could buy it, obviously, is to go to their local bookstore and see if they have it, and if not, order it. Because that, if you do that, that lets the bookstore know that there's interest in the Absolutely. book. Um, Absolutely. So some people are loyal to their local bookstore. I'm a big fan of that. I mean, I think Amazon's got enough money, folks. Go to your local bookstore. They won't miss it. Right. Amazon is easy, and it's simple, and it's one click, and I get all that. But if you if you do have a little... You know, soft spot in your heart for your local bookstore. Go down, go down, and see if it's there. And if it's not there, say why. Why isn't it here? This is a good book. And order it. Yeah. Well, tell us, Peter. What are you working on now? Do you have a Do you have a next project? I no, I don't. The Lloyd Mangrum story. I would love to do that. I think it would be a fun fun project. I just I I despair at the at the notion of trying to sell it or even trying to get anybody to publish it. Yeah. Do all the research and then you know get a quiet room. I mean, I've got a I've got a fair amount of research on them already. Yeah, but there's still a lot of stuff that uh, I mean, I'd really like to do a deep dive into the military part of his career, and I'd like to do a deep dive into um, like the '46 Open and stuff like that that he won. Uh, but uh, I just don't think he's got enough name recognition. It's tough. I agree. Yeah, I mean, I know of him obviously, but there's I'm probably one of the one percent that would recognize that name. Right. And there's uh, one of the articles that I read about him that had Byron Nelson at the Masters. And I want to say, it's, would he be still alive in 1996? I don't know. It was some, well after he retired. And, you know, it was the new generation of golfers at the Masters. And Byron was there. And he, he went around and asked these guys if any of them had heard of Lloyd Magnum. And none of them had. Uh, and. This is a guy who, in his first competitive round at Augusta National, shot 64. And that record stood for 40 years until it was matched, I think, and then another uh, until uh, Nick Price and Norman both shot uh, 63s there. I think they're the only two that I have. Uh, and that's, so that 64 stood for a long time. And uh, that was his first competitive round there, you know, and he was a late add-on to the field. And he finished second. He didn't win the tournament, but he finished second. Let me ask you this: Have we have we turned you over to the dark side now? Are you giving up writing for the, you know on the Celtics dynasties, and now you're going to be a golf writer? Have, have we convinced you to turn the a deaf ear on basketball and join us uh, in the golf I, crowd, I, the I, cool I, crowd, if you will? Yes, uh, I would say that's true. Nice. Uh, well, the first part of it's true. I'm not writing any more about basketball. That's over. And Will you write more about golf? Do you think? If I do, it'll it'll be about golf. If I hit, if I can, you know, scrounge up another book topic or book idea that I think would work, um, I think it would be about golf because I really I've stopped following most of the major sports on a regular basis now because I don't have to, <laughs> and uh, it's a lot easier. Uh, just to sit down and watch. Like I can't wait to start watching the U.S. Open this weekend. Oh, me too. Me too. Yeah. Very exciting. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining the show. I, I mean, it's it's been enlightening. I hope everyone goes out and buys the book. 
Uh, again, the open question, Ben Hogan and golf's most enduring controversy by Peter May. Go to your local bookstore first and then revert to Amazon if you have to. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Connor. Appreciate it. While I voiced my opinion during our interview, I thought I'd take a moment to elaborate my argument against the Hail America National Open being a U.S. Open. While there are many points to argue, I will state my top seven. My points against are as follows. Number one, the USGA canceled the 1942 U.S. Open in January of 1942, roughly a month after the atrocities of Pearl Harbor and soon after the U.S. joined the Second World War. The USGA made the announcement, and not only did they never waver from that decision, they repeatedly reinforced the mantra that the Hail America National Open was not a U.S. Open. When you are the ruling body of golf in America, and the organization which holds the U.S. Open, I am not sure how you can debate that sterling fact. The USGA's statement on the status of the Hail America National Open has never wavered in the past 79 years. 2. This is only a Ben Hogan argument. How many of you have heard of the 1917 National Patriotic Open? In 1917, the USGA was in the exact same position, canceling the 1917 U.S. Open due to the war that would end all wars, or so they thought. The National Patriotic Open was a substitute for the canceled U.S. Open held at White Marsh Valley Country Club and won by Jock Hutchinson. Upon winning, he was presented a medal that was given to him in the same mold as the U.S. Open medal, just like Hogan in 1942. And it was given to him by the president of the USGA, just like Hogan in 1942. What Jock Hutchinson lacked was a friend like Dan Jenkins to plead his case to the press. Alas, some argue for Hogan's Hail America National Open, but nobody argues the case for Jock and his 1917 National Patriotic Open Championship. 3. Mr. May alludes to this in the book on page 107, when he states that if Odie Chrisman won the Hail America National Open and not Hogan, nobody would raise this issue. I agree 100% with Peter May's comment. If not for Hogan, this is not a debate. And in my opinion, that statement alone ends the debate. Hogan was a great player in 1942, but he wasn't as accomplished as Byron Nelson, who had claimed four majors prior to the Hale American National Open. So aren't we really looking at this argument through the prism of Hogan's greatness later in his career? And should a winner's name alone dictate whether something is or is not a U.S. Open? or even a major. 4. Add to that point that the big push for the Hail America National Open as a U.S. Open was essentially promoted and perpetuated by Dan Jenkins years after the tournament. Jenkins was Hogan's friend and hardly an unbiased observer. 5. The course wasn't selected by the USGA. They picked Interlochen. The course, admittedly, by all parties, wasn't set up to U.S. Open standards. It didn't have U.S. Open rough or U.S. Open green speeds. And as a result, Ben Hogan recorded a 62 in the second round and won the tournament at 17 under. In the previous 10 years of the U.S. Open, 
The closest score in comparison to par was the 1939 U.S. Open that Byron Nelson won at 4 under par, 13 strokes higher than Hogan's total in the 1942 Hail America. In fact, the first player in U.S. Open history to record a score in relation to par, double digits under par, didn't occur until Tiger Woods in the 2000 U.S. Open when he went 12 under. 6. How about the argument over the golf medal being similar to the U.S. Open medal? The medal itself does look similar to the U.S. Open medal, which is likely due more to practicality than anything. Just like the previous World War, the U.S. government would soon limit the use of most medals, pushing valuable medals to the war effort. The USGA essentially gifted the stamp medal that was intended for the 1942 U.S. Open at Interlochen. They are the same mold. But just like the analogy I made about the Red Sox and Yankees baseball caps, the inscription is what matters. The medal was not inscribed U.S. Open champion. No, it was inscribed the Hail American National Open Golf Tournament. While the inscription does include the USJ, it also includes the Chicago District Golf Association and the PGA. Finally, at the bottom, it is inscribed with the notation that this tournament was for the Navy Relief Fund and National Service Organization. If that isn't enough, Ben Hogan was given a second gold medal for winning the very same tournament, and that was for winning the Chicago National Open Championship, also known as the Chicago Open, a yearly event on the PGA Tour. And again, if these facts don't sway you, I will remind you again that in 1917, Jock Hutchinson received a USGA gold medal stamped 1917 National Patriotic Open for winning a tournament that was substituted for a canceled U.S. Open. This is the precedent for it not being a U.S. Open. 7. The final argument that Hogan fans make is that if Hogan thought it was a U.S. Open, that's good enough for me. Well, in fact, Hogan flip-flopped and flip-flopped often on this very subject, enough that it makes you wonder whether he was messing with people like he did with Ben Hogan's secret. In 1955, Hogan, prior to the U.S. Open, told the press that if he won his fifth U.S. Open at the Olympic Club, that he would retire from competitive golf. Why would he say that if he thought he had won five already? In 1966, in an interview on film, Hogan states, It was a great disappointment to me in that I've been trying for years to win my fifth Open, and that was as close as I've gotten, and it might be as close as I'll ever get. There are certainly times when Hogan said he won five U.S. Opens, but there seemed to be just as many denials coming from him. At the end of the day, I just don't think there's any real evidence that history should be overturned for Ben Hogan. Just because we all want something to be true doesn't mean that it should be changed to capitulate a good vibe. And what about old Jock Hutchinson? From a legal standpoint, he set the precedent that there could be a substitute national open, that the winner could receive a gold medal from a U.S. Open mold, and given that medal by a standing USGA president, and it not being a U.S. Open. All of this being said, by the book, it's a great read. There's a lot of fascinating historical stories that weave together multiple storylines around this unusual event. Read the book and make up your own mind. Do you think it should be a U.S. Open? Do you think it should be considered a major? Read the book and let me know your thoughts. Until next time, yours, 
in golf history. This is Connor T. Lewis. Mm-hmm.